Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I often find myself reading a great book at the wrong time, such as Dostoevsky's dark and chaotic masterpiece, Crime and Punishment, on a sunny and calm day at the beach, or a book on Christian sexual ethics on a crowded Chicago train in the middle of Pride Month, or a book on pacifism at an army training event. There's a dissidence between my environment and the book. But every now and then, things seem to line up just perfectly. Like when I was called to jury duty on a bitterly cold winter day in St. Louis. It was two degrees outside, skies were dark and gray, there was no one on the city streets. It felt like almost like a scene from a post-apocalyptic movie. The court building was an equally depressing sight. There was paint peeling off the walls and all the furniture looked like it was at least 50 years old. So immediately after walking through this court's building, you walk through rows and rows of metal detectors and there's these unfriendly security guards simply pointing you to this huge next room. And there when I entered in, there was a crowd of people all busying themselves on their computers and their phones distracting themselves away, avoiding contact at all costs with each other's eyes. So I sat down in the far corner of this big room and grabbed my book, Toy Stories, The Death of Ivan Illich, originally titled The Death of a Judge. The story recounts one man's agonizing death and his struggle to make sense of his life and God. So sitting in that lonely chair outside the court buildings, it made sense to read about the death of a judge. It felt like the great book at the right time. Here in in his book, there's towards the end a climactic scene where Ivan is struggling to make sense of his life. He cries out to God about his feelings of helplessness and about the cruelty and the absence of God that he feels. He says, what does this all mean? Why has it happened? It's inconceivable that life was so senseless and disgusting. And if it really was so disgusting and senseless, why should I have to die and die in agony? Something must be wrong. Perhaps I did not live as I should have. He says, now comes the judgment. But I'm not guilty, he cried out indignantly. What is this for? And he stopped crying, and turning his face to the wall, began to dwell on one and the same question. Why all this horror? What is it for? This is the scene that meets us where we're at in our liturgical calendar. In Advent, the church stares at the world as it truly is. Not as we want it to be, or even hope it to be, but as the world truly is. 
a world, as we are all well acquainted with, that's filled with darkness, death, and disorder. A world where boys enter into schools and shoot their classmates out of despair and rage. A world where earthquakes and tsunamis take people from their dinner tables to their deaths. And a world in which children wither away in hospital rooms. And a world in which the darkness all around us is often just as dark inside our very own hearts. Why all this horror? What is it for? This is the crucible of Advent. How do we, as a church, exist in the time between the first and second coming of Christ? How can we, with any sense of honesty, declare that God is for us, that he loves us, and that he's with us in the darkness? And so it has been the place of the church to declare into this very darkness that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. In Advent, the church looks back to the cross in which all the sins of the world were borne away by Jesus and to his resurrection in which he defeats death. And the church also looks forward. We long for, we groan, we anticipate for Christ to come and to establish his kingdom and to reign. So this evening, I want to look at our gospel text from Matthew 24 and talk about the promise of Christ's return and what it means for us to be ready. So first, let us situate ourselves in the context of Matthew's gospel. Our passage is taken from a portion of Jesus' teaching, mainly concerning eschatology, the last things, known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' teaching beginning in the first verses of chapter 24 is prompted by his prophecy of the destruction of the temple. The temple was at the center of Israel's life. It signified God's very presence with his people, the union of heaven and earth for the people of Israel. So Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of that very temple attacked the very heart of what it meant to be a person of God, to be a part of the covenant. He was signaling to his disciples the coming of a new age. And so our discourse that we're picking up with today is Jesus' answer to the question that his disciples properly ask him of when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. These teachings of Jesus' have been very challenging and perplexing to many generations of Bible readers throughout the history of the church. Jesus is interweaving prophecy about the coming judgment of Jerusalem that took place in AD 70 and the final judgment at the end of the age. But today we are going to be focusing on Jesus' answer to the disciples, focusing on that second question. What will be the sign of the coming at the end of your age? So beginning in verse 29, we see from the upstart that this will not be a hidden event. It will be clear for everyone to see. We read, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. This is apocalyptic language drawn right from the Old Testament prophets. The primary Old Testament image that Jesus is evoking is from Daniel chapter 7. This is a thread that we see through the entire discourse. Here's what Daniel says in his vision. This is the key to interpreting this this section. He says, 
Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came like one, like son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The people of Israel lived in anticipation of this son of man. It was their their balm throughout their exile and persecution. One day God promised to vindicate his people. One day God will judge all nations. The son of man will be enthroned as king of kings. That theme we looked at last week. And no earthly ruler, king, or politician will do. Jesus will sit down next to the Father to rule and to judge. This judgment we see in verse 30 that leads the nations to, of earth to mourn. For this will be the end of all of their false securities, lust for power and greed, of warfare and the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable, and the murder of the innocent. Evil will not have the last word. God's judgment will hold all to account. For the justice of God demands it. In verse 31, we see Jesus will gather his elect from the whole earth. He says, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. No one who belongs to him will be missing. The Lord will gather his church. In verses 36 through 44, we see Jesus dialing in on this aspect of his return. His return will be unexpected, and it will be imminent. Verse 36 says, No one but the Father, not even the Son, knows when Jesus will return. This has been a challenging verse for many people to to hold in tension with our understanding of the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. We know, shouldn't Jesus, the Son of God, know when he is coming again? But this speaks to the radical nature of the incarnation of God in Jesus. Jesus gives up certain divine attributes for us when he became man. Paul makes this argument in Philippians 2. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I don't think we should read too much theology into this one verse, but it is clear how truly unexpected Jesus' second coming will be. No one knows that day or the hour, not the angels of heaven, not the sun, and especially not strange charismatic cult leaders with their calendars and their predictions. In verse 37 through 39, Jesus compares his second coming to the days of Noah, when the flood took the world by surprise. While the world was sunk in brutal indifference, comments John Calvin, they were eating and drinking and marrying until the day Noah entered the ark. They were preoccupied with the busyness and the pleasures of their lives. And so it will be when Jesus returns. You may remember from the baptism last week, there's a beautiful analogy in the tradition of the church between Noah's Ark and the Ark of Christ's church. 
In our baptism, God has claimed us as his own. He has promised the forgiveness of your sins, which we hold to, we claim by faith, and therefore we enter into Christ's church, the ark. And so now, the prayer book says, as we pass through the floods of this life, we do so together as members of Christ's church. In verses 40 through 44, we see Jesus continues to elaborate about the unexpected nature of his return. He says in much detail, he says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is announcing the earth-shattering and apocalyptic end of the age. He will return to judge the living and the dead. But still, so many of us are struggling to stay awake. We are overwhelmed by the demands and the tragedies of life. And we're struggling to keep our heads above water. Your addiction that you just keep coming back to. The cancer diagnosis that caught you by surprise. The out-of-control family dynamics that you were just trying to hold together. The pain of past trauma that haunts you every day. The pressures of work that hollow you out so that you're reactive and angry at those who you love most. The temptation to publish enough papers or grow the business to where you think it should be or to get the right GPA so that you'll get into the right grad school or to make your parents proud. So it's no wonder that we often want to fall asleep. There is a sense of calm and false security that comes from turning away or numbing it all out. If we could just detach ourselves from all this pain, this anxiety, all this trouble, perhaps then we could find peace. Or at least a break. I think we feel this especially during the Christmas season where we're flooded with consumerism, advertising, and versions of Christianity that sentimentalize the sinful world that we live in. There is something something strangely warming about a Hallmark Christmas movie where true love is always found. The disease is always miraculously healed. The business is saved at the last minute from bankruptcy and bitter family divisions are always put right. But that is not the world we live in. And so we here tonight need a God who saves us from our weariness and our drowsiness. We need a God who enters into it all. Why all this horror? What is it for? We must look to Christ upon the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For upon the cross, Jesus entered all of our darkness, experiencing the desolation of our loss, the trauma of abuse, the misery of depression, the pain of broken relationships, 
the grief of loneliness, the suffering of sickness, and all the consequences of sin and the darkness around us. The justice of God demands punishment for sin. So the judge of all history became judged for us upon the cross. The judge died for you. Peter writes, For Christ also once once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. The judgment of God has taken place in history upon the cross. And for those who belong to him by faith, the judgment of God is good news. We will join with that great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are just and true. We shall dwell with God and death will be no more. The last point I want to touch on tonight is that there's this paradox that runs through Jesus' discourse. As we follow him, we actually more, we become more awake and more alive to his love and to the world and our participation in it. Being bound to Christ, we are unburdened from all the ways in which the pains and the distractions of the world have lulled us asleep or who or have battered us unconscious. And so we are set free to love our neighbors amidst this very darkness. After our passage tonight in the discourse, there's three parables that Jesus tells, and he fleshes out this theme of what it looks like to wait patiently for the coming of God's kingdom. He characterizes staying awake and being ready by looking to the parable of a servant who carefully manages his master's property. There's this parable of a bridesmaid who is prepared with plenty of oil in her lamp for the bridegroom so that he may enter the marriage feast and a servant faithfully stewarding his master's money. And in the great climactic final judgment at the end of chapter 25, at the end of this discourse, Jesus views the heart of faithful living as we wait as as serving the least of these to provide for the hungry and the thirsty to welcome the stranger, to clothe the poor, to visit the sick and the imprisoned. So we see Jesus cares about what we do as we wait for his return. But these words are not to be turned into a to-do list to earn our keep in heaven. Rather, he is inviting us to participate in the kingdom of God and his love for the world. These tasks that Jesus has given us are a crucial part of what it means to follow him, but they are rooted in the nature of the God who has come to us and who has ultimately made us ready. So I want to close this evening with a brief story from the life of Mother Teresa. She is in many ways the classic image of Christian charity in our generation, giving herself for the poor in the slums of Calcutta. But less commonly known was her deep, lifelong struggle with her faith, her wrestling with God in the darkness. In a private letter to a spiritual mentor, she writes this, Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me, the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one, the one who you have thrown away as unwanted, 
unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. No one on whom I can cling, no, no one alone. The darkness is so dark, and I am alone, unwanted, forsaken. The loneliness of the heart that once loved is unbearable. Where is my faith? She was haunted, haunted by the suffering all around her and her own fragile faith. But in the last months of her life, as her health declined, she lay in a hospital bed with heart failure and ammonia, unable to speak or move because of the pain and a breathing tube. She tried to write messages on paper for days, but she was too weak. Finally, early one morning, she was able to scribble something on a piece of paper. All she wrote was, I want Jesus. She faithfully waited for Christ's return. But the scandal of the gospel of Christ is that she was just as ready for judgment as you and me. It was never her work among the poor that brought her near to God, but only by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we enter into Advent, let us follow Jesus as we serve the least of these as we look at the world for how it truly is, and we wait for his return. But let us never forget that it is the God whom we serve, the God upon the cross, who finally makes us ready and keeps us awake. For it is this God who promises to be with us always to the end of the age. Amen. They could not take your